if God can save any person, then he can save any church. I don't like to hear people say that church should die. I do understand that some churches will die. But I don't think that any church should die. That's like saying that Jesus' bride should die, and I don't think that that is the right perspective. If God can save any person, he can save any church. I believe this to my core. When you are presented with someone who is receptive to the gospel and they're standing before you and you're sharing the gospel with them, I believe that in that moment, God could save them. If God can save any person, he can save any church. My first congregation that I led was a megachurch of six people. I was 24. My wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time. She was in college. And I felt called to preach. And so back in the day, they had these boards that they would put actual paper on. And that would be the way that you would communicate information. And sometimes if you needed something, you would put a piece of paper on a board and it would have little tabs at the bottom with a phone number. You'd pull the tab and then you'd call the number. Well, there was a church that was so desperate that they put one of these papers on the board of a college that was about an hour away where my wife attended. Girlfriend at the time, not my wife. And there was, none of the pull tabs were pulled on this thing. So she thought, this is the opportunity for Sam. Nobody wants to go there. Even a college student doesn't want to go there. So this is where Sam needs to go. I arrived at the church. There were six people. I prepared a resume for them. I handed it to them. They handed it right back. They didn't even open the envelope. Herbie, the lone deacon, just asked me, can you preach? I said, I've never preached before, but I will try. Then he looked at my girlfriend, now my wife, Erin, and he said, can you play the piano? She said, well, I sort of can, and that is how my ministry started. <laughs> They had just gotten rid of the outhouse. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I know that there's this thing called pastoral hyperbole. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. They had just gotten rid of the outhouse and installed indoor plumbing. And so they were very proud of their throne room. And every time they talked about the throne room, it meant something completely different than maybe what you mean by the throne room. I'll never forget when they officially called me. So... And this is, everything I'm about to tell you is a true story. So I'd been preaching there for maybe six months. I forget the exact timeline. It's about six months. And I just assumed that I was supposed to come back the next week. So I, every time I showed up the next Sunday, I just assumed that maybe some other preacher would be there. I didn't, I didn't know. We never really communicated about it. I thought, well, they hadn't had services in two years prior to me coming, so maybe, maybe I should just keep coming back. And I did. And finally, there was one Sunday where... Herbie, that's his real name. I guarantee you he's not watching this because he lives completely off the grid. Herbie decided that this was the Sunday that I was going to be officially installed as the pastor. Now, I don't know. Well, let's just say that they didn't have correct polity. So he, he stood up in the middle of my sermon, like literally in the middle of my sermon, and said, all right, 
it, it's time for you to be called as pastor. And I thought, okay, it's time. So I stopped my sermon. And understand, this is a part of rural Kentucky where they speak a different language. And thankfully, my wife, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, is from there so that she, she could translate for me. And so the, the people here, good people, but they talk like they have marbles in their mouth. So if you put a bunch of marbles in your mouth and then try to speak, that's the way it sounds. So that was Herbie, very thick accent. And I, half the time, could not understand what he had to say. So he gets up in front of the church. He, I can tell that he wants something to happen with me being the pastor. And he goes, all right, Sam, two, two questions. Wrong, 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 wrong. Two questions. Wrong. And he asked the first question. I had no idea what he said. I had no clue. But Herbie only asked yes or no questions. So I answered, the, I guessed. I just said, well, no, Herbie. And he got furious. I thought, man, I am messing this thing up. All right, second question, so so and so forth. I said, well, the first one was no. So I'll just guess, yes, Herbie, yes. And he got even more irate, stomped around the church. And as he's having his fit, I look at my girlfriend at the time, soon to be fiance, and then later wife, Aaron. And I'm like, what? did he say? And she is laughing so hard. She's got tears in her eyes. And she goes, the first question was, do you eat fried chicken? <laughs> and you said, no. I said, well, what was the second question? She goes, the second question was, do you chase women? <laughs> and you said, yes. Unanimous to call me as pastor. We had more problems than people. We had no money. We had a 24-year-old pastor who had not even read the Bible fully through yet. Here I am preaching God's word. And I have not read Genesis to Revelation. I had no idea what I was doing. No clue. No air conditioning. That was our first capital campaign. That's a whole nother story. Herbie wanted to go door to door. I thought he meant evangelism. He was thinking capital campaign. We go knock on doors. I'm sharing Jesus. He's asking for money. It was just. <laughs> but God worked. An unhealthy church, an ill-prepared pastor. Two neg God often takes two negatives and makes positive. God knows math. That tiny little church of six grew to about 40 people. When everyone asked, how's the church going? I always gave them the rate of increase, not the raw number of increase, because it sounds so much better when you say, we've grown by like 3,000%, right? <laughs> I doubted myself all the time. And that's really what I wanna talk to you guys about. I've got some great and funny stories I could tell you of all my mistakes, particularly as starting as a very ill-equipped pastor at, at 24 years old. I wouldn't change it, by the way. God just threw me into it. And I'm glad he did. 
But I had all sorts of doubts. I'm a city boy. That was a country church. I was driving two hours one way to get there. I was bivocational. I tithed more than whenever they paid me, when they could. I mean, my tithe was more than what they paid me. It was a very awkward sort of thing. They would reach into the plate and just after the service, just pay me out of the plate. And I'm like, I, I, this is just, I don't like this. So I was bivocational at a corporate job. I was untrained. I just started seminary. I mean, I just started. I was not married, um, although I did have a girlfriend who became my wife. I was inexperienced. I mean, I had literally preached maybe two sermons before I went there. My only deacon had more tattoos than teeth. He smoked marbles in the back of the church when he got bored with my sermon. There was every reason to doubt Union Band Baptist Church. I had all sorts of doubts. And then it was later in my ministry that I came across the Great Commission. Now, I knew what the Great Commission was. But there's a part of the Great Commission that we often skip over. And, and I want to take you there. Matthew 28, 16 through 17. Maybe you know 18 through 20, as you should. This is a Great Commission institution. It's the life, breath of who you are. But there's also a part of the Great Commission that often we don't talk about. And that's the part that I want to get to. The part that really resonates with me, because even though I've done a little better in ministry, I still have doubts. Maybe you do too. So for those of you who have a level of doubt within you, that you're the ones I want to speak to today. If you have zero doubt about your abilities, great. This, this has nothing to do with you. But I'm, I imagine all of you have something here. So look at what it says in Matthew 28, 16. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some of them doubted. And then it gets into the part that we all know, the part that you know, is the core of the Great Commission. But here, right before the ascension, we see a level of doubt. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus made appearances to his disciples. They could see him. They could talk to him. They could hug him. They could touch him. Now, in Luke 24, they thought Jesus was a ghost. He rebukes them. He shows them his hands and feet. And then, I love Luke 24, 41. Jesus is like, hey, you got something to eat. And I love that. The disciples, though, stood, it says, stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Now, let's think about this. Maybe you have doubts. The disciples struggled with doubt while also being filled with joy and wonder. Talk about a dichotomy. Talk about like an emotional tornado. They're struggling with doubt as they are filled with joy and wonder. Jesus appears to his disciples right before the ascension. They, they travel up this mountain dragging this range of emotions with them. Let's think about all that they've experienced up to this point. I mean, they've betrayed and denied Jesus. He was resurrected. They've seen so much. They've experienced so much. And here they are. They're standing on this mountain and Jesus is about to like launch into the heavens. And they saw him. They worshiped him. But some of them doubted. It is far too easy to skip over that part of the text. 
and jump right into the heart of the Great Commission, which I do believe is critically important. Don't get me wrong. But right there, in the moment where Jesus is going to share the last words that he will share on this earth, to give one of the most important commands that he's ever given, we have doubt. Now, this is the grand question. All of you are in seminary, and if you were in class, you would likely be talking, or at least answering the question, well, what or who were they doubting? And that's a fair question. I think it's a great theological question. What were they doubting? Were they doubting Jesus? Were they doubting their Savior? Were they doubting the instructions, the circumstances? Were they doubting the next steps? I mean, what are or who are they doubting? Now, there's a lot of different perspectives on this text. If you dig deep into the commentaries, you're going to find different viewpoints. Maybe some get it. Maybe it's two different groups here. Some get it, they're the worshipers, and then some don't, they're the deniers, or the doubters. And maybe, maybe that's what's going on. There's two different groups here. That's possible. You know, is there another group that's struggling? Is, is there a, a bigger crowd here than maybe what might be indicated or what might we think? Maybe there's a, a larger group here and contained within that larger group is, is doubt. That's possible. You know, some have just, you know, speculated maybe the resurrected Jesus was harder to recognize and they had a level of doubt about that. I guess that's possible. Now we could debate these questions for quite some time and I think that's worthy of discussion and worthy of debate. But the the point that I wanna make as I share with you today is something very simple. Doubt was present. We know that, that somebody there or some group was doubting something. If some of the disciples can experience the glory of the ascension in the moment and still doubt, it is likely that you will have doubt as well, even if you have incredible success in ministry. I feel like, you know, some might look at my life and say, you've done pretty well. I mean, I, good. I've pastored a few churches. You know, I'm 42 now. I've survived this long so far. Okay, yeah. I still struggle with doubt. Maybe you won't, but I do. Man, I've had so many failures. I've had so many flops, so many things that I thought were good ideas that turned out to be very bad ideas. I like to say, you know, just with my close friends, I'll just bring you into my close circle right now. I like to say to my close friends, I've been fired, liared, and tired. I've been pushed out, I've been lied about, and I've been down and out. And again, maybe you're not there right now. Maybe you are. I don't know. But at some point, you likely will experience a fired, liar, tired sort of moment. It's coming. We fight a battle that is spiritual, and Satan does not want the Great Commission to go forth. And so if he can prevent churches from sharing, then of course, that's what he wants to do. Now, I do know that the Greek word here, when you look at the text, the Greek word does imply more hesitation than it does unbelief. And I get that. Doubt causes us to hesitate. But what does this 
hesitation potentially prevent? So here some doubted. The Greek implies hesitation. What's next? It's go and make disciples of all nations. So when you doubt and when you let doubt consume you, what is happening is a hesitation with the Great Commission. And I think that's why Satan introduces doubt into the equation. Because one of the greatest lies of Satan is that you've got plenty of time. Sure, Jesus is real. Sure, you can accept him, but you don't have to worry about that right now. Sure, you can share Jesus, but you don't need to worry about that right now. Hesitation is one of the greatest tactics that Satan has. And he uses doubt as a strategy to get you to hesitate. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 11, a very famous passage, you, uh, you see that after Jesus ascends, two angels come down and challenge the disciples. I love this. Men of Galilee, they said, what are you standing here? Why are you standing here staring into heaven? I would. I mean, goodness, my Savior and Lord just launched into the heavens. I'm gonna look up and watch. But then these angels come down and they say, what? Get to work. Don't hesitate. Move. It's time we get moving. I'm saying that generally all of the churches that are represented here. It's time to get moving. An inactive Christian is a disobedient Christian. A stationary church is a disobedient church. One of the worst things that you can do is just stand around and stare into the heavens. Sometimes it's doubt that causes us to hesitate. Matthew 28 teaches you keep worshiping through the doubt. What's the answer? What do we do about this? Well, Worship through the doubt. Matthew 28, Acts 1. Keep walking through the doubt. Get your feet moving. This is Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. I'm gonna say this to you because you're in an institution that I cherish and love and you're exercising your minds many times and I think that's wonderful and that's good and that training is necessary but please use your feet just as much as your mind and keep serving through the doubt. Well, how do I do that? Well, here's how I do it. I have doubts that bubble up. I have things that I think about. I have hesitations in my life. You serve your way to confidence. You pray for others and you let them know. One of my favorite things to do, now that I have the ability to text, which um, when I started in ministry really was rudimentary, um, and now I, I get text messages, man, I give up my phone number, I want to be accessible to my people, and then sometimes I'm like, why are you telling me this? Like, I'm at the grocery store, I'm buying broccoli, and I'm like, praise God, you know, buy the best you can to the glory of God. I, and they, they message me all the time. And I love it, I absolutely love it because I wanna be accessible to my people. But when I pray for people, I text them. In fact, when I'm leading our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, that people raise their hands and so-and-so's hip and so-and-so's sick and so-and-so this and my first cousin's aunt who's got a dog and all that stuff. And I tell them, okay, that's great. But if you submit a prayer request and you have the ability to contact them while we're praying, I want you to text them and tell them that we're praying. Just Text encouraging message to people. Pray for people. Let them know. Write handwritten notes. How do, you, how do you serve through the doubt? Take a moment and just think of all of the people in your church that 
really do a phenomenal job and just sit down one afternoon and, and write 20 of them a handwritten note and just thank you for what you do for the kingdom of God. Volunteer for menial tasks. I was literally, this is such a dichotomy this week because we had our treat street, which is like a fall fest, Halloween, and I, my job is to take out the garbage afterwards. And I, I literally took out the garbage and then I come here and preach at seminary. It's like, this just a crazy dichotomy there. That's, that's ministry, by the way, right? Volunteer for the menial tasks. God honors those who seek the last place rather than clawing for the first place. And doubt is resolved in the weeds of service. The solution to doubt is found on the lowest rung, not the highest rung. This is what the disciples struggled with. They struggled with this concept. Far too many times, you read the Gospels, far too many times, they wanted glory without sacrifice. And a desire for glory without a willingness to sacrifice is a dangerous posture that leaves you vulnerable to all kinds of spiritual attacks. The most lethal attitude for a Christian or for a church is I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. This is what doubt does. It causes hesitation. It prompts in you a, a hesitation that prevents you from doing gospel work, kingdom work. It's the most lethal attitude that a Christian or a church can have. Frankly, an institution like yours, a wonderful beautiful, amazing institution. May this not be an I can't institution. May Southwestern Seminary not be the I can't institution. The most contagious attitude that a church or a Christian or an institution can have is God can. May Southwestern have the God can attitude and posture. I'm gonna share with you a, another story. And um, it's, it's of a man who had an incredible influence on my ministry. And, and no, I'm not talking about Alistair Begg or Tim Keller, W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers. You, you know all the names, right? You know all the names. Now, they have had an incredible, incredible impact on, on my ministry. But I, I want to tell you a, a story that hits home personally. Because as you shepherd a congregation, you will find, and this is the scary part of shepherding a congregation, at least for me, every time I've gone to a congregation, I've pastored a few. Um, hopefully, I'm at my last one, I hope. Um, Every time I've gone, I have found that there are many people there that are more spiritually mature than I am. I'm the pastor. They know the Bible better than I do, and yet I'm the pastor. That's humbling. That's hard. That's difficult. But it will be true. It will likely be true of all of you if you serve in a church. There's always somebody who knows more and is more spiritually mature. So I want to tell you the story about Randall. Somebody who just shines the gospel. Now, you don't know him. If you do, please see me after the service because that would be quite a connection. 
He was a member of the last church where I served. He was a big dude, um, very big dude, and a very happy big dude. So just get that image in your mind. I wore overalls a lot, always serving, just happy. And the thing about Randall, so this is a small southern town. That's where he's from. And Randall would gravitate towards people that were not like him. That was his thing. Oh, you're not like me. Well, I'm gonna gravitate towards you. And, and we need more of this because often when we think about sharing the gospel, it's people who are like us. But the calling of the gospel is not to share Jesus with just people who are like us, but also those who are not like us, who don't share our beliefs, who don't look like us, who don't think like us. And that was what Randall did. And, and he did this simply spirit-led. He had no theological training. He, he didn't know Greek and Hebrew. It would have been good if he did, but he didn't. And so just being a spirit-led individual, the Holy Spirit would take him to people that you would see him with them and you would go, that's not a match. How are you guys friends? And I love that about Randall. There was this one Sunday. Um, now understand, this is a small town in Tennessee and it's a college town. So there are a number of um, people there from all over the world because they're coming to this engineering school because they're in town. And so I show up to church one day and I notice that there are a large group of Indians in the foyer. And by Indians, I mean people from India. And clearly out of place. I mean, it's one of these where they're just like, all of them, just like, what? Where am I? What is this? So of, of course I asked the First Impressions team. I'm like, guys, who, who are these people? I don't know, there's 10 or 15 of them. I'm, I wasn't exactly sure. And they said, oh, oh yeah, Randall. Randall brought them. All of them? Yeah. Okay. So I'll go over to Randall. Like, Randall, what? I'm glad they're here. This is great. I, I was told you brought all of these people here. Oh yeah, brother Sam. Well, okay, and then I asked how, and he then proceeded to explain to me that he had taken the church bus. And he had gone to all the bus stops in town. And apparently this group thought they were going to the mall. They didn't, they were new, they're not from this country, they just hop on the bus. And Randall brings them to church. So I had to tell Randall, like, I, like, there's some legalities here. There's some liability here. But, but to the glory of God, I'm glad they're visiting with us today. One of them stuck and accepted Christ eventually because Randall shared Jesus. His name was Sam, believe it or not, same, same as me. And there's a whole story. He got chiggers one time. I caught him in the, um, uh, in the Walgreens, local Walgreens. He's dancing around and he's like... I, you know, I've got this thing. I'm like, nail polish, nail polish, man. They, they don't have that in India, do they? And that's a whole nother story. I have to tell that another time. Anyway. So anyway, Randall brought all this. He's, bring, he's always bringing people to church like that weren't like him, that people are like, what are you doing here? I loved it. That's, that's, that's a gospel ambassador right there. He reached out to, to two single moms, um, rough part of town, Here's the story of these two single moms. It's a mother and a daughter. 
So the mother, single mom with the daughter, the daughter, single mom with the child, a baby. But the baby was not hers. Uh, her best friend had dropped the child off at her house just for babysitting, left town, and never saw her again. And you can only imagine the stigma that came with two younger women, two single mothers, mother, daughter, grandson, and people just assuming things. When you see single parents and when you see people like that, don't make assumptions. You, you, you never know what's going on in that life. Of course, Randall said, well, you're coming to church with me. He won both of them to the Lord, sharing Jesus with them. So I told Randall, I said, well, man, you gotta baptize him. And he's like, mm -mm, mm -mm, I don't get in front of people, Brother Sam, I don't do that. And we went back and forth and I, I said, I'm not baptizing him. You want him to the Lord, you're gonna baptize them. And he said, okay. He finally, I finally convinced him. He doubted himself. He doubted himself. He didn't think he was worthy. He didn't think he should. He's not a pastor. I said, well, Randall, I think it'll be all right. You want him to Christ, you need to baptize him. And he brokered a deal. He said, okay, Sunday night service. I said, all right. So of course, I told everybody. It's like our largest Sunday night in the history of the church. And he, he saw that big crowd and he knew what I had done. He, it, was, it was such a beautiful moment. There's this big dude who usually wears overalls. He was nervous. He was sweaty. He had a big old smile beaming on his face. He baptized those two women. Everyone had tears in their eyes. Everyone was joyous. Smiles everywhere. Randall walked out of the baptistry, had a massive heart attack, and died. I felt terrible. I remember sitting with his widow and being like, I, I think I killed Randall. I mean, like, I, I told him he had to do this and it prompted this heart attack. And I'll never forget what she told me. She said, no, God had foreordained his death. It was his time. But because Randall was faithful, and because Randall pushed through that doubt, he worshiped through the doubt, he walked through the doubt. His very last words on this earth were in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're liared. Maybe you're just struggling right now. Maybe you doubt right now. What I'm about to tell you is very hard, but I believe it to be true. You must approach the throne of God ready to collapse into the arms of Jesus. If you live a comfortable life and waltz into heaven refreshed, you have not lived the way that you should live. I know that that's hard, and I know most of us gravitate towards comfort. That's what we all do. But if that is your posture in ministry, and if that is how you live, you are not living for the glory of God. You're not living for the kingdom of God. Approach the throne of God, ready to collapse into the arms of Jesus. 
Because when you stand before God, and we all will, he's not going to say, well done, good and faithful businessman or woman. He's not going to say, well done, good and faithful school teacher. He's not going to say, well done, good and faithful athlete. He's not going to say, well done, good and faithful megachurch pastor. But what will he say if you do your job as kingdom ambassadors? Well done, good and faithful servant. 